Hi, everybody. Welcome to the February 1st, 2019 edition of Colorado Winset Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on RTD launching its first ever autonomous shuttle program operating from the 61st and Pena Rail Station. Although the shuttle will not have a driver, an ambassador from RTD will stay in the car at all times to ensure the safety of its passengers. Pat Calhoun from Westward. I don't know. To me, it seems that the sponsorship of this thing writes itself. If the University of Colorado is going to sponsor the A-Line, this seems like the Denver's Roomba, but maybe it's me. What do you think? Well, I thought it was the most ludicrous thing I'd heard, especially when you have an ambassador sitting there but not driving it, until I realized I'd probably rather be on that RTD vehicle than the the R-Train, where the driver is now on leave for having um, severed a woman's leg. Yeah, with with uh, the derailment. Right. Yeah, gotcha. You're, uh, good, good point. David Cole from the Independence Institute. After a couple weeks off, it's good to have you back. Does RTD get a little more latitude to try something like this mm-hmm. than, let's say, you know, uh, Bob's taxi company to do a, an automated vehicle? Well, for all the mockery we hear around this table, I think we'll look back to 2019 and we'll say, wow, that was a time when RTD could afford to send ambassadors uh, <laughs> to different places uh, because RTD is in a death spiral. It's made a huge bet on light rail, enormous capital costs. The capital costs are about double, uh, in many cases, what they expected. Ridership has not increased. They're still 5% of metro area commutes, just like they were long ago. Uh, and despite Mayor Hancock's attempts to increase congestion and make people ride RTD, it ain't working. They could and they're, they keep riding, raising the fares to cover their operating costs. But the which drives down ridership even further. They have an econom- They are economically unviable, and we'll miss them when they're gone. Eric Sonman, political analyst. Are if you're a driver at RTD, are, are you seeing a canary in the coal mine here? Well, if you're a driver of any kind, uh, I mean, the the driverless revolution is coming. We just don't know on what time frame. Uh, whether you're a taxi driver, whether you're an Uber and Lyft driver. I mean, if if we go. You guys like doing the time machine shows going backwards, but if you do a future tense time machine, I mean, driverless cars, not that far in the future, are, are going to be the norm. I'm with Patty. The ambassador thing caught my eye. I think ambassador is a fancy word for chaperone or I don't know what else we could possibly, uh, what else we could possibly call them. I mean, to be fair, this is a proof of concept. It's an experiment. It is not ready for rollout. It is not at scale. It's going to go 12 miles an hour, etc. I'll be curious to see what comes of it, and it is a step in this driverless movement. I used to resist that movement because I actually enjoyed driving, but then something switched in me a few years ago. I said, but no one else is driving. They're all texting. So if everyone's just going to be texting, Bring on, the, bring on the revolution. You're here. Uh, rounding up the panel, Megan Schrader, editorial page editor of the Denver Post. It's great to have you back. Uh, Megan, are you excited to try out the uh, new vehicle without a driver but with an ambassador? So not this one. In a loop around a small make-believe community, um, it's not exciting. But the, the prospect of having driverless cars, a society where you no longer own a car, you you hop a ride in, in an autonomous vehicle and get to where you're going is exciting. It's going to change, could change everything. The State House and Health Insurance Committee passed a bill on Wednesday by a 7-4 to four vote that would address sex education in Colorado. Many people testified against the bill, with some arguing that the bill would allow teachers to explicitly teach students about sexual acts. 
However, Democratic lawmakers and sponsors argue that the bill would not do this and instead address the stigmas surrounding sex, especially among girls. Patty, uh, sex education in Colorado has never been without controversy, but this seemed to be quite the show uh, on, I guess it was maybe Wednesday night or earlier this week. Your thoughts? Well, a 10-hour hearing in which people presented more positions than any sex ed class <laughs> is going to have. The most important thing to remember about this bill is that it still allows parents to opt out. Uh, there were so many different rumors going around, but that is still true. What it also would do is get rid of abstinence-only sex education, which we would argue, I would argue, is certainly not the most useful for kids out there. I mean, we see sexually active kids. We see kids getting in really bad scrapes in elementary schools in some cases. In junior high, they're getting more sexually active younger and younger, and it's generally not good. I mean, the more education they get that is fair, balanced, and reasonable, the better. Uh, but remember, parents can still opt out if they care enough about their children to give them some useful education at home. David, uh, you are a legal analyst at the table. What is the big difference between the law proposed right now and the 2013 law that's already in the books? The complete elimination of local choice and options. Now, if this passes, if you're a public school, whether you're a traditional neighborhood school or a charter school, which is supposed to have more independence in its curriculum, if you mention sex at all, if you want to teach a class that says, here's how human reproduction works, you must then buy in, must teach this full statewide mandatory curriculum and everything from the sperm and the egg all the way through gay and trans relationships and everything in between. In real life, as opposed to the legislature, human sexuality is very diverse and people have many diverse ideas about it. In a free society, we allow people their choices. In a totalitarian society, there is no choice and pure indoctrination on one side. And people have appropriately criticized the so-called religious right for trying to jam down its one particular view of human sexuality and everybody else. This is the same thing from the hard left. There's going to be one way to think about it, despite everything we say in the Colorado Constitution about local control. Everybody's going to be taught this way and indoctrinated in a particular thing. Yes, the students can opt out. By the way, only out, they can opt out only of official sex ed classes to the extent that this comes up elsewhere in the curriculum, even by direct deliberate instruction. Parents aren't even to be notified about that. They're forbidden to be notified. And uh, there was an amendment to say you can't bully kids who, whose parents choose to opt them out, and notably that was rejected. Uh, quite a celebration of diversity there. Uh, Eric, looking at this politically, uh, I think before a session starts, we usually around this table talk about the different things that we can predict are going to be the, the flashpoints. And then every once in a while you're going to get this thing that at the very least is under the radar before the session and turns into this, uh, this crazy hurricane that was earlier this week. Does this have legs with either base? Absolutely, and it particularly has legs with the base out of power, i.e. the conservative base here. This will not be forgotten by them. I'm impressed that you got sex as topic number one on the show, Dominic. It ought to help our ratings. It, it, it works uh, on, on commercial TV. I have no doubt uh, it will work here. I'm, you know, David and I don't always see eye to eye, but I'm closer uh, to his 
to his viewpoint here. I cannot quite figure out what was broken about the old system, the local control system, uh, the system that allowed charter schools in some cases to take a different approach. What was so broken about that that we needed to come in with a one-size-fits-all kind of a uh, kind of approach here? Uh, there is something to be said for local control. There is something to be said for respecting minority viewpoints, which is something I thought the left and the Democratic Party used to stand for. But here, when the minority viewpoint is a more religious viewpoint, religious-based viewpoint, there is very little tolerance for it among people who tend to preach tolerance. Uh, that is not my personal orientation, the religious viewpoint, but it goes to show the increasing divide in this country. We talk about the red-blue divide, but it's largely a, a secular versus re religious divide and has become increasingly so uh, over recent years. We talked earlier before the session started about who on the Democratic side, whether it was Jared Polis or who was going to have the brake pedal, who was going to control the brake pedal. As you pointed out in your question, Dominic, this was not an issue we necessarily saw coming. It is a flashpoint issue, and it shows me that really no one is riding the brake pedal within the Democratic caucus or the Democratic administration right now. Megan, has the Denver Post editorial page taken a stand on the issue? We have. We supported the bill. And let me push back on you guys quite a bit here. Um, it, this has, does not impact local control. The, there is no mandatory curriculum across the state. What there are are very thoughtful state standards that have been developed over years for what they think kids should know about human sexuality. And it's, it's by grade level, right? So there's a curriculum for what you should learn in preschool, and it is age appropriate. And then when you get into high school, it's age appropriate for high schools. And it's not a curriculum, it's, it's standards for what kids should learn. A charter school can still go out and adopt their own curriculum that can teach kids those standards. The standards are things like teaching women that there are risks involved with being sexually active. But if you choose to be sexually active, here are some of the things that you can do to decrease the risks of STDs or pregnancy. All this bill is saying is that you cannot, if you're a charter school, teach abstinence only. If you're going to teach sex education, you have to teach kids about condoms. It's pretty common sense, I think. It's not radical. And if a parent is adamant, I don't want my kid to know about condoms, it's against my religion, they can opt them out or send them to a private school that isn't publicly funded. But as a state, I think it's a good thing for us to say, this is a public health need, that our students are taught this and that our students know this when they leave school. And this is a good bill. It has some flaws, but it's a good bill. Clearly not the last time we'll be talking about it at this date. I can tell that right now. The 2020 U.S. Senate race in Colorado got a bit more interesting this week. After voting against border wall funding two weeks ago, Senator Cory Gardner endorsed President Trump for re-election in an interview this week. Meanwhile, former Colorado State Senator and candidate for governor Mike Johnston announced he was jumping into the 2020 Senate race. Uh, David, I guess I was trying to figure out if if Gardner's just kind of have a serpentine strategy where one day he's going to be over here and saying, uh, I, I'm against wall funding, and this is where Colorado stands up. No, wait, I'm going to be for Trump and his for re-election. Or is this a pretty standard position where a Republican senator from Colorado should be? It's a standard position for 
senators of either party from Colorado, which is they, I don't, I think you'd have to go back over a century uh, to find a case where a incumbent senator uh, did not support the reelection of the incumbent president of the same party. And at the same time, Colorado senators on particular issues as they come up uh, will sometimes vote against the president over their same party. So that, that's a fairly standard uh, behavior. You probably have to go back to Henry Teller, who uh, split with the Republicans in the around 1900 over silver and, and helped form a sil- separate party, the Silver Republicans. I'm taking um, your word for it on that Okay. Um, uh, Johnston is a very formidable and serious candidate. He came in third in the Democratic primary, but uh, he still uh, has a good demeanor. He's knowledgeable on the issues, a hard worker, and was certainly respected in a bipartisan sense at the Capitol. He's got five other candidates so far who are already in the race, not not that well known, but Crescenta Duran, former House Speaker, and uh, Andrew Romanoff, also a former House Speaker, are looking about getting in. and they would be strong candidates too. Uh, Michael Bloomberg is has picked Johnston as his favorite, and um, that's a lot of money there, not only directly from Bloomberg, but all the ways he can put it in indirectly. You know, money can't. Uh, Bloomberg put sixty million dollars into New Mexico in the last election cycle, and money can't buy love, but it can buy New Mexico, as has been empirically proven. So I think New Mexico was a test case, and we, we could see over $100 million or more just Bloomberg money uh, coming into Colorado in 2020. Uh, so that augurs well for uh, Johnston's prospects. Eric, you're a political analyst. What, uh, what do you analyze from Gardner's move, and what's the impact of Johnston's entry in the race? Well, let me st- start with Johnson, and we'll, we'll go to Corey. As David points out, Mike Johnson is a very able guy. This is going to be a very competitive primary, in addition to some of the lower-profile candidates who have announced. I think you're looking at potentially four top-tier candidates, not in any order. Mike Johnston, people close to Andrew Romanoff tell me he's getting ready to do this thing. It's only a matter of days or weeks before Andrew Romanoff is in it. John Walsh, former U.S. attorney under Barack Obama for Colorado, well-liked, well-respected in Democratic ranks would be a formidable candidate, and then Crisanta Duran. That is a heavyweight field. It goes to show you the talent that is on this Democratic bench in Colorado, unlike the Republican bench, where it really starts and stops with Cory Gardner. Uh, It is going to be, you know, we haven't even stopped for a mayoral race in Denver. We're already talking about a U.S. Senate race the better part of two years out, but it's going to be a barn burner of a race, and that primary could be every bit as entertaining as the polis, Gary Kennedy, Johnston, Donna Lynn, Noel Ginsburg primary was uh, not, not even a year ago. To Cory Gardner, I think he's almost in a damned if you do, damned if you don't, and maybe just damned situation. I mean, Corey won by 1.9 points in 2014 when Donald Trump was still hosting The Apprentice and hadn't yet surfaced on the political scene. That was as good a year as Republicans are ever going to see in Colorado. And he st- and, uh, and Mark Udall was a weakened incumbent who ran a poor campaign. Corey won by under two points. This state has turned. It continues to turn. It's turning hard. Uh, if, if, Gardner, if Gardner runs away from the Trump base, the base doesn't has zero forgiveness. But if he runs toward the Trump base, Colorado is going to have zero forgiveness. He is in a very tough, extremely tough political predicament. 
Megan, even for us, this is early to talk about a Senate race, but is it because it's going to have such a magnifying glass uh, amongst the nation's Senate races in 2020? Yeah, it's going to have national uh, impact. Everyone's going to be watching this race, along with a handful of others, but definitely it's going to be um, one of the hottest races in the nation. People are already talking about it. Um, and, you know, I think you're right. I, I don't think Gardner is in a win situation no matter what he does. Um, he could have responded a little more thoughtfully to the question of are you going to um, endorse the president for re-election. He could have said, well, there's a pending investigation I'd like to see. Or he could have said, um, you know, that I've, I've been disappointed with some things so far. You know, he, the president can do better. Um, I think that he could have hedged it a little bit better than just right away giving up and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm all for Trump 2020. Um, he, but he does have to walk a line politically, and, and that's too bad that, um, that our politicians these days are, are um, so hesitant to, to, to weigh in on, on these types of issues strongly. Patty, Johnson might intimidate Gardner and other Republicans. Does he intimidate other Democrats from jumping in the race? No, I think we've had clown cars before. Now, I'm thinking this is a better quali- better caliber of clown, but we are still going to have plenty of people jumping into this race because the Senate seats don't come up very often, and especially not when the incumbent actually looks vulnerable. I got spanked last week for saying something nice about Cory Gardner because I applauded him taking the position he did on the shutdown and going against Trump. And I think he did it. It was the right thing for him to do. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. He was wrong to come out and say what he did about supporting Trump right now because he could have, as Megan said, he could have waited. He could have said, I'm holding back until we see a a few things. 18 months out, he didn't need to do that. The Denver Teachers Union responded this week to the request from DPS to get the state involved in the work dispute. The statement from the union said that it would be futile for the state to get involved and that the two sides were too far apart for intervention to work. The Colorado Department of Labor and Employment has yet to decide if it will intervene. Eric, I guess the response from the union wasn't surprising, but what do you make of their claim that the sides are too far apart for the state to do any good being involved in the the, uh, dispute? Well, a couple of quick thoughts. First of all, let's be clear, it's not going to be the State Department of Labor deciding where to intervene. It's going to be Governor Jared Polis, and it is going to be the first, in my mind, the first really sort of tough political call of his administration, where there are definitely political cross-currents as to whether he does this. The union wants him very much to stay out. The union is very influential in Democratic politics, but Polis, with his money and the way he won election, has a degree of independence from that union, and and he's differed with them on other issues as well. It is increasingly increasingly clear to me that this teachers' union wants a strike. They want to be on strike. They want a short strike. They want a three-, four-, five-day strike, to my thinking, because if it drags on, their popularity and, and the public opinion they have at their back will quickly dissipate if this turns into a two-week or longer kind of strike. Parents will tire of it uh, very, very quickly, but they want to strike. They were $8 million or somewhere in that ballpark apart after what the after what DPS put on the table yesterday, that number shrunk to maybe five-something. That, in a $1 billion budget, that's a rounding error. 
if they wanted to reach an accommodation, they could reach an accommodation here. They want to strike, and I would argue, and others would argue, that maybe DPS has already given away too much. Maybe, and I'm not talking just economically, but in terms of policy, with pro-comp dollars, with money, uh, incentives for teaching in poverty schools, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on. I know we're short on time, uh, but this one is not yet played out. Teachers Union wants to be out on the streets for a limited period of time. Megan, are the sides really all that far apart? They are, because it's it's not just money. Um, in fact, money has is just a small, small portion. It's a philosophical difference about how we think teachers should be um, rewarded and and incentivized, and if the district is doing a good job of that. Um, I am a huge fan of. Procomp and the idea of Procomp, the idea that we are going to um, teachers who are working in schools that are more difficult to teach in because of poverty levels, because of um, English language learners, that we are going to pay those teachers more. Teachers who are teaching math and science, they're hard to find. We need to increase the, the pay for those teachers to, to lure them to the district, especially really highly qualified ones. I just fundamentally believe in that. Now, there are problems with how ProComp has been applied, and I, I, the, the, the district has made some strides, I think, in, in making it simpler so teachers know what they're going to earn where. Um, I, but at the end of the day, there, it's a vast difference between a union that would like to see the status quo returned, where if you work 20 years, this is what you're going to make, regardless of what school you teach in or what your qualifications are or what your subject is, I hope that we don't roll back to that point. Patty, does the union get a worse deal if the state gets involved? I think so in this case, because if you look, they are close They are close on money. And I think at the state, at a certain point, is going to come in and say, the concessions that have been made so far are pretty big. I mean, the salary increases. I think Megan's right, too. It's not just the money, though. It's philosophy here. And last week, we were saying the DPS didn't look very good because they had just made, you know, the boneheaded release of the letter regarding people, teachers who were from, um, who were not citizens of the state. Now we see, if you're looking at how people look, the image of the teachers and the union walking out last night when there was still over an hour set aside for bargaining, just in good faith, they should have sat there. They could have argued. If you could sit through 10 hours of um, sex hearing, they could have talked about that. But they should have <laughs> sat there through the time that the DPS had allotted. David, we're close on time. Wrap it up for us. If you're not as expert on teacher contracts as our, uh, other people are, you can learn from just the negotiating behavior, as Patty said. One side comes in and says, we're $8 million apart. We've got, here's an offer for $3 million. The other side, instead of st starting to negotiate from that, throws a tantrum, starts screaming and yelling, has some guy with a drum beating, shame, 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 and they claim they're doing it all for the kids. You know, the United Auto Workers, when they don't go on strike, they don't say, we're doing this for the drivers. It's not that we want more money. We just care so much about the drivers. <laughs> Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, he's been a disgrace before, and I'm bringing him up historically. Douglas Bruce, who owned a lot of very bad properties not far from this station, was a slumlord. I wrote about it decades ago, got yelled at by him about it. Finally, those some of the buildings he owned very close to here have been taken over and will be turned into affordable housing. Not by him. David. Another step in the mainstreaming of, of hatred and uh, 
bigotry in American politics. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has appointed Elon Omar uh, to the House Foreign Relations Committee. This is someone who's a card-carrying anti-Semite and wants to exterminate the state of Israel. Eric. It's a longer subject. Maybe it should be a real subject around this table sometime. But the path the Democrats in the legislature are on to participate, have Colorado participate in what's called the popular vote, national popular vote compact to really get rid of the Electoral College. We've got to be a little more careful about disbanding institutions just because one party has temporarily taken over rule of state government. It will limit Colorado's influence in, on the national level. It's bad policy. It's, we could go on. Disgraceful. Megan. Uh, I'm going to go with Mortensen Construction and Trammell Crow. The more I learn about the scandal where these two companies um, worked together to ensure that Mortensen Construction would have a leg up in the bid process for the Denver Convention Center, a multi-million dollar bid, the more disgusted I get. It just is really heinous. Time to say something nice. Patty? I'm going to stay in this neighborhood. Um, the Cousins family, which has been involved in Five Points for so long, and Renee Cousins King just gave $100,000 to the Black American West Museum. Um, it's a great move. David. Liberal Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Lessig, who uh, has masterminded a case which the Independence Institute has supported in amicus briefs, argued before the Tenth Circuit uh, just this week, saying that the state cannot force electors to vote in a particular way. Uh, that would be some, that's a constitutional protection against this unconstitutional uh, bill to take away Colorado's electoral choice. Eric. Howard Schultz, who is apparently going to run for president, We'll see how it plays out. It's too early to get on board, but a whole lot of Democrats are having conniption fits also prematurely, to my thinking. Donald Trump was a disruptive agent. You're missing the mark if you don't think there's going to be another disruptive agent in 2020, if you just think this is going to be a straight line between here and there, and the country's going to sit still for an election between Donald Trump and the most activist left Democrat that the, that the party can find. Uh, perhaps the party may look at the Howard Schultz thing in the future as an opportunity instead of a curse. Megan. Um, Republican State Senator Don Corum who is a co-sponsor on the um, sex education bill, is taking a lot of heat from his party right now for joining in that bill. But he's standing strong. This is the best thing for Colorado kids. It's impressive. And I have a quick say something nice. As an Italian that grew up in Denver, I have a lot of cousins who watch the show, and I'm grateful for it. But specifically, a quick shout-out to my Bertoli cousins, Ted and Sally and Jesse and Aaron, who continually tune in, and it was great to see you guys at the latest family gathering. That is all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. Thanks for tuning in. I want to remind you, you can catch Colorado Inside Out in many different ways beyond the broadcast. We have a podcast. We're on YouTube, Twitter, CPT12.org. We're everywhere. Be sure to check us out. For everyone here at CPT12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.